a big part, I think, of what makes life meaningful is, is having a quest or some kind of goal in life that allows our purpose to be revealed. And our purpose comes from being, really from being needed. And so we are a social organism, right? Even people who are in careers that might seem very personal or individualistic in a lot of ways because they're doing something by themselves, their explicit goal isn't to serve the community, are typically working on a problem that is really about making people's lives better, even if that's not their most proximal goal. But underneath that is a sense that I'm doing, I serve a function in society that's needed. If you live in an environment in which you're your survival is very proximal to you. Like, you, you know, you have to go get water every day or there's something that you're putting food on the table for your family. And if you disappear that, <laughs> if you just vanish, right, that would be an unmet need. In many ways, it might be easier to really see how, how you're needed and thus how you're meaningful. And so one of the challenges I think in modernity is it's much harder to collect that data. I remember seeing movies like Fight Club, you really started to see this emerge in the, in the 1990s in, in popular culture, that this idea of we're just consumers kind of being ushered around by external forces and what's the whole point of it? And we just work in cubi boring cubicles so we can buy more crap. To, and yeah. you, so you got, the, you got that kind of sense of um, that, that sort of narrative or, or what's, what's the point of it all? You're listening to Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. Each of you has some sphere of cultural influence, no matter how great or small. Every microculture and subculture that you're embedded within is plugged into a larger macroculture, such as American culture or Western culture. Right now, Western culture has a crisis, a crisis of meaning. But I believe each of us can do something about it in whatever little spheres of cultural influence we have. Those of you who have been listening to this podcast for the last nearly five years now know that I have argued that this pervasive nihilistic malaise that can hang like a heavy blanket over our culture is the result of the West coming to believe a guiding story that tells us that the world is pure chance, random, chaotic, devoid of any objective meaning. That you're made up of matter, but you don't matter. But I believe we're in the beginning stages of a mass culture-wide rejection of that story. And I wanted to start this year by talking to experts in various fields who are interested in solutions to this meaning crisis, even if they don't fully agree with me on those solutions. Some of these guests might share some of my Christian theological convictions and others explicitly do not. And sometimes that makes for the most fascinating conversations. The point of commonality that all of these guests share with me is the conviction that humans are fundamentally a spiritual species in search of meaning. Today's guests are Dr. Clay Rutledge and Ben Wilterdink. Dr. Clay Rutledge is a leading expert in existential psychology. He is a highly cited scholar who has published more than 100 scholarly papers, co-edited three books, 
authored two books, and received numerous awards for his academic research and student mentorship. His work has been featured in pretty much any major media and news outlet that you can think of. When I last had Dr. Rutledge on for an interview way back in year one of this podcast, he was teaching at North Dakota State University, but he's recently made a transition outside of traditional academia and now serves as the vice president of research and director of the Human Flourishing Lab at the Archbridge Institute and is the co-editor of Perfectus Magazine. Ben Wilterdink joins us today as a new guest to the podcast, but as a colleague of Dr. Rutledge, who I was eager to connect with as well. He's the director of programs at the Archbridge Institute, whose work focuses on the connection between economic and social policy and existential meaning. Ben had written a fantastic article for Perfectus on nihilism and social policy, which made me think that bringing him into the conversation might help us think about how institutions and systemic structures of culture impact meaning. This will be a two-part conversation, but if you wanted to watch an unedited full video of this conversation right away, it's available on Patreon. This podcast, as well as the content I release on YouTube and the writing on my Substack page, I give away free of advertisement. But my ability to do this and continue my work is dependent on the support of listeners just like you. If you find my work to be of any value to your life and you want to see it continue, we need 200 patrons on Patreon for me to continue this work in 2023. I offer patrons a range of rewards and additional materials as a thank you for your support, including bonus episodes, live Zoom discussions with me and fellow patrons, and so much more. So please consider clicking the link in the description below to keep my work afloat. I'd rather just close up shop on this whole project before I colonize your attention with ads for things like mattresses or grooming products or whatever. So thanks for considering supporting and I hope you enjoy part one of A Quest for Meaning as a Spiritual Species with Clay Rutledge and Ben Wilterdink. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Deep Talks. I am joined today by two outstanding guests that I'm really excited to have on. Clay Rutledge is the first guest, and many of you who have been longtime listeners may be going all the way back to probably year one of the podcast. We're almost in year five now. Remember an interview I had with Clay and uh, talking a bit about his work as a, you know, an existential psychologist and behavioral scientist. And so um, maybe I'll post a link in the description if you want to go back. And I don't know if that talk is still relevant or not. Probably is probably more so to listen to Clay than me kind of um, get my footing as an early interviewer. <laughs> but um, Clay, good to have you back again. And uh, along with Clay Rutledge, we're joined by uh, Ben Wilterdink, and I am going to have both of these guys introduce themselves. Clay, I've given you a little introduction, but would you tell um, listeners a little bit about yourself, your professional work, and what you're doing these days? Yeah, and, and thanks, Paul, for, for having me on. So as you mentioned already, I'm an existential psychologist and, and by training and really, you know, my I, I did my graduate work in a field that's known as experimental social psychology, which is basically psychologists who study how people exist within the social world. And often the, the experimental component of it means, you know, I was trained largely to do laboratory based studies. So we'd bring, you know, humans into a lab setting and 
subject them to all sorts of different like prompts and conditions to sort of try to, you know, as much as we could control the environment in ways to where we could see how they respond to different stimuli. So that's my, that was my like um, actual training background. But then, you know, I became a, a professor and I was a professor in academia for 17 years, two years in the UK and 15 years at, you know, North Dakota State University and there I did, you know, laboratory research, but also during that time, I, I, I really started to expand beyond that to doing different types of methodologies for studying people, quantitative, qualitative, you know, survey methods, you know, the, the experimental methods I described. Um, but at the heart of my work is, is trying to understand the distinctly human condition as an existential species, you know, as an organism that doesn't just strive to to survive in our physical world, but has this deep, um, you know, mental life. Um, uh, we're able to ask questions about the nature of our existence. Why are we here? What purpose do we serve? What happens to us when we die? How do we connect to other people? And all of this, you know, really circles around the idea of the human quest for meaning in life, that we're an organism in search of meaning. And so I think in, you know, in my first appearance, we talked largely about that since that appearance, which was like you noted, I think five years ago, I'm no longer a professor at a university. I now work full-time at a Washington DC based think tank, um, the Archbridge Institute with, with my colleague and good friend, Ben. And um, there I'm the vice president of research and director of a, of a new program we've launched called the Yuma Flourishing Lab, which is basically a lot of what I just said, um, but more applied to real world practical issues. So how do we understand human nature, human psychology and social life in the context of what we think will help people achieve a flourishing life and how does that connect to public policy economics and other so a, a much more interdisciplinary approach and you know a lot of our efforts i think and I'm, I'm sure we will get into this are geared towards um or i guess i'd say are motivated by certain trends that are really so worrying i think um uh, a growing pessimism and cynicism and nihilism and a you know, kind of a, a victimhood mindset, a retreat from human agency, a retreat from a sense of like shared purpose, um, a retreat from a sense of duty and responsibility to our, our fellow humans. And um, and so, you know, I, I think that the work that I'm doing, at least I hope the work I'm doing um, has important implications, I think have largely been neglected in public policy circles and in disciplines um, like, like, like economics. And that's how you've got connected to Ben. So Ben, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, new guest, we've, you know, probably most of my listeners aren't familiar with you unless they've read some of your stuff on Perfectus or follow you on online. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where where you come from and your, your p- particular points of professional connection to this work. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks again for, for having me on here, Paul. Um, I'm really happy to join and, and have this conversation. Um, I have a little bit of a maybe an interesting background. I grew up mostly in the San Francisco Bay area. Uh, so kind of during the nineties and in the early aughts. And that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that, um, that culture and, and, and growing up there. Uh, and then when I was 18, I moved to Lynchburg, Virginia to go to Liberty university. Um, and, uh, that's a culture that was, change. That was a bit of a culture change. <laughs> uh, the humidity really shocked me too. Um, uh, coming from, uh, from the San Francisco Bay area. Um, but so I, I spent some time there and then uh, in 
about 2012, I moved up to DC and I've been working in uh, different public policy uh, spaces, mostly on the uh, uh, think tank side of things, doing research, mostly state level economic uh, policy is, is sort of really where like taxes, regulations, different things like that. And uh, so I've been doing that for the past, you know, a little over 10 years now in some different roles in some different organizations. And, uh, but it's always been s- sort of with this eye on increasing upward economic mobility. How can we uh, create uh, an environment such that people are able to rise up the income ladder, um, both in their own lives, but also across generations. And uh, so that's been a real uh, key point of study for me um, and uh, working with different uh, lawmakers and different stakeholders. Um, but uh, about five years ago, I joined uh, the Archbridge Institute, uh, which focused on this uh, very directly. And really quickly, it became apparent to me that the economics were not the whole story here, which may be obvious to some who are who are a little less embedded in those in those circles. Uh, so I started looking around for some different other uh, pieces of the puzzle to bring in, and that's where I came across Clay uh, and his great work on meaning. And so uh, I reached out to him, and we were able to uh, connect and work together professionally. And I think you know we've become uh, friends and colleagues since. And uh, so I think. A lot of what he works on is uh, very relevant to this question of flourishing, um, this question of meaning. And I think you know a key uh, piece of his research uh, discusses meaning not only as this output that is gained when people are doing well, but it is also an input uh, that can help motivate people and, uh, and not just motivate, but also um, just uh, foster those behaviors that are going to be more helpful uh, in an economic and social sense. Uh, so that's that's kind of where I'm I'm coming from at this. So I think you know all those public policy questions are are very important, uh, but I think sometimes they don't they don't always grapple with this side of of what it is to to be human, what it is to flourish, what it means to have uh, these social connections at the sort of the center of of these projects and what you're doing. And so uh, trying to kind of you know uh, marry that perspective with the economics and make sure that that is represented in the public policy discussion is. Is kind of where I'm coming from. Was that, were you always aware as you headed, headed into that field of, of economics, were you always aware that you felt a connection or an attraction to it because you saw it as a, as a important vehicle in people's meaning-making journey? What was it about that particular field that you were, you were first drawn to it? Well, I think, um, you know, it's, Really early on, you learn uh, things like, you know, human beings are not just economic units. Uh, and I think that that is um, maybe a perspective that some people can uh, get a little carried away with. Uh, and so once you sort of accept that and understand that and, you know, talk to people, be, you know, just be a regular person talking to people like that's not, you know, they're not motivated in that way. They're not thinking about things that way. And so, um, you know, I always knew that that was another piece of this puzzle uh, but I think more recently, what we're seeing is kind of a, like a deepening of these problems, like Clay was talking about, of nihilism, atomization, disconnection. Um, and I think, you know, you can't, uh, you can't be studying these kinds of policies and looking at, you know, things like uh, the number of men who are dropping out of the workforce, prime age men uh, who don't have um, necessarily have physical disabilities. Um, so, you know, ages, you know, 25 to 54 um, like the rates of their labor force participation are in steep decline, uh, the rates of suicide uh, and then drug overdoses, which is 
I mean, it's arguable whether how that overlaps with suicide, but these statistics are um, shocking. And, and uh, those, those, that has a lot to do with, um, you know, what it means to flourish and what it means to, to grow and, and to, uh, you know, become economically viable and climb across generations. Uh, this is just a really big part of the puzzle. It always has been, uh, but I think that it's gotten a lot more acute in the past few years. Uh, and uh, I think that's, um, that's really what is uh, turning my attention a little bit more to this side of things. Yeah. And it's great that people like you do that because, you know, from my vantage point, I'm, I'm, I'm more invested in the world of ideas and, and particularly religious ideas and theology. And it can be very easy for those in disciplines like theology or philosophy to not see the connection between the way, of course, we have these guiding stories and narratives, right? As Clay, your work is, is illustrated that we're storied creatures that we don't just have, you know, like a, a monkey or a dolphin, these, these instincts just to survive and to procreate, but we also are searching for meaning. And so much of my attraction has been to the stories that give us a sense of meaning and purpose. But yet sometimes I've noticed among my peers, um, and even in my, I'll be honest, introspectively here, even in my own internal world, I've not given as much attention to the systems that once we are in a particular story or accept a particular story to be true about the world, that we actually, we have to live in the world a particular way. And we have to have systems that allow that story to play out. And so admittedly, econ is not one of my strengths. So I'm glad to have you here today to make me um, a more well-rounded individual. <laughs> I'm wondering for both of you guys, you know, there's been this phrase, um, and I don't know who coined it first. You know, some people appoint to John Verveke because he uses it in his series Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. But of course, <laughs> meaning making has been around as a term for at least back to, to Robert Keegan and maybe even before him. And so um, there's been this phrase floating around in the, in the zeitgeist in some pockets of the internet um, that's describing our cultural moment in the West as a meaning crisis. Um, Clay, I'll start with you. Do you feel like that's actually an appropriate term that's describing uh, something about our cultural moment right now? Yeah, I think so. And I, I should start by saying, I mean, there certainly is the the scientist side of me that's programmed well for skepticism. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and what I mean by that is, um, I think we do have a tendency, and if you and, and people have highlighted this, like you can look back through old newspaper articles, for instance, and there's always, everything's always a crisis, right? There's a, and so we do have a tendency to think that we're in some kind of unique space as humans. And of course, the lessons of history often are that things can take on different flavors. Um, but at the core, you know, a lot of the issues may, you know, a lot of the issues are, you know, are remain the same or repeat over time. So, um, you know, that being said, um, I do think there is something distinct about our current time. This is something Ben and I talk about a lot and we've written about together about this era of, of, of material abundance in, in, in which it's a positive story in a lot of ways because, you know, people are far less likely to die as babies or, or children now, right? You're, you're, you're far more likely to, to live a full life. Um, we can cure diseases we couldn't cure before. 
um, you are less likely to die of starvation. Um, people are, you know, and if you look at these kind of global statistics of human progress, there's it's very much a success story. And that shouldn't be in any way forgotten. And I think it's very, very easy for us to take it for granted. Um, so what that, but but at the same time, this might create some unique challenges for humans in that, you know, part of what, a big part, I think, of what makes life meaningful for us is the struggle might, you know, might not sound right, like the quite the right term, but is, is having a quest or some kind of goal in life that allows our purpose to be revealed. And our purpose comes from being, really from being needed. And so we are a social organism, right? Even people who are in careers that might seem very um, personal or individualistic in a lot of ways, because they're doing something by themselves, their explicit goal isn't to serve the community, um, are typically working on a problem that is really about making people's lives better, right? Um, Or improving the world in some way, even if that's not their most proximal goal. But underneath that is a sense that I'm doing, I serve a function in society that's needed. And so um, if you live in an environment in which your your survival is very proximal to you, like, you, you know, you have to go get water every day, um, you know, you have to go down to the river or you have to hunt or you have to work in the field or there's something that you're putting food on the table for your family. And if you disappear that (laughs) if you just vanish, right, that would be an unmet need. Um, In many ways, it might be easier to really see how how you're needed and thus how you're meaningful. And so one of the challenges I think in modernity is it's much harder to collect that data, I think, or it can be much harder to collect that data. Um, If you're and you see this and I mean, you started to see this. I'm not saying you didn't see this before, but I remember seeing movies like Fight Club. You really started to see this emerge in the the 1990s in in popular culture of this idea of we're just consumers kind of being ushered around by external forces. And what's the whole point of it? And we just work in boring cubicles so we can buy more crap. (laughs) And so you got you got that kind of sense of um, that that sort of narrative or, or what's what's the point of it all um and clearly that came out the same year as the matrix which right is right to me exactly both right. are playing on themes like that right right so i think that 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 kind of narrative is 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 more in the air now because it is it can be harder for people to to feel like where do i fit in what do i do what is expected of me and um, and so to the extent that that's a growing challenge, especially for young people, particularly if they're not doing things that clearly reveal how you're needed, like starting a family. Um, I mean, if you have any any of us who you know, are familiar with like raising small children, you very much know that these are little you know life forms that completely depend on you. Um, and so those are things that sig- really signal like where you're where you're valued. Um, there's some there's some very interesting work in um, clinical psychology on suicide. That it, it's based on a theory called the interpersonal theory of suicide, and and what uh, what they articulate is one of the biggest predictors of the desire to to die by suicide is burden. What they call burdensomeness. It's the feeling that you're a burden. And the other predict the other psychological predictor is a lack of belongingness. And so those two things aren't aren't identical, right? You can feel like people 
like you and that you belong and that you're, you know, and that um, your social environment is pleasant um, while at the same time feeling like you're not making a contribution that you, in fact, worse than that, you might actually be weighing down the group. You might be a burden. Now we think of these things as typically as distorted cognitions because a lot of times, you know, people who suffer from major depression, um, their perspectives are not their pers- their perspectives inaccurate. Like they actually are doing things that people value and, and they have a hard time seeing it. Um, but in general, that you know, that kind of gets to this idea of like if if the opposite of feeling needed is feeling like a burden in a lot of ways, right? Like you're actually you're not adding something; you're actually taking away something, and that's a strong predictor of the of the desire to die by suicide. I said desire because um, there actually is another component to suicide that's called called, uh, acquired capability, which is people might have the desire to die by suicide, but really not have the, the, um, for lack of a better word, the the guts to do it. Mm -hmm. And this is why you see maybe in certain professions, people are more likely to actually die by suicide because they're, they're more pain tolerant or, you know, they're more able to kind of use mortal methods, um, fatal methods, um, but anyway, all that's to say is I, I do think there is something to this idea of of a meaning crisis. It's very, very difficult to pick up in a lot of the questionnaires that we do. I mean, you can get some sense of it. Like younger people, younger adults today are more likely to say their their lives aren't as meaningful as maybe older generations. And, um, but it, but it can be hard to pick up and just that sort of self report methodology and but i think if you start to dig deeper into some of the other ways of getting at questions like people's sense of whether or not they they feel like they can meaningfully influence the future positively contribute to the world um the numbers aren't aren't very um, encouraging uh, Mm -hmm. among young adults it's one of the challenges clay too that when you're trying to somehow scientifically quantify if people are if we're experiencing something significant in our cultural moment that we would say is a meaning crisis is that you've moved out of the realm of just pure facts and now you're into values. So you almost have to have like a narrative framework to begin with that would say, well, this is what a meaningful life is. So here's your benchmark. And now you're not hitting that benchmark. And that, that seems like that's difficult unless again, you can already have some sort of agreed upon narrative framework where it's like, this is what a meaningful life looked like. Now, Obviously, there might be some some base like evolutionary appetites and instincts that we have to have that give us a sense of meaning. Like you talked about humans as social creatures. And I was just thinking about recently, I had um, a couple episodes, the past two episodes have been um, an interview where I was on the other side with a couple of Gen Z YouTubers who wanted to talk to me about the problem of evil. And, and one, of, one of them brought up, and this is interesting, <clears throat> that he kind of had the wherewithal to say this, but he's like, All right. I look back on history and I go, it seems like people, and I'm summarizing here, it seems like people have had historically much worse existence. When we we look at material factors, we look at life expectancy, we look at um, economic factors. And yet my generation feels so empty and deprived of meaning. And, And part of the thing I just wanted to, I don't know if it was encouraging or not, was to bring back this, what you brought up was that humans are social creatures. And so almost it's kind of like, regardless of the fact that like, yeah, both my grandfathers fought against actual Nazis Mm -hmm. in World War II. And my grandfather on my mom's side, you know, got malaria. He went off to the Pacific theater, got malaria, dwindled down to 
under a hundred pounds, came back and had seven kids, you know, and I can look at his life and go, man, his life was so much harder. Why should I feel bad? But as social creatures, isn't that sense of meaning intrinsically connected to, at least on some level, the way like our serotonergic system works Mm -hmm. and as social creatures, like we're attuned to where we sit in our group. So for him, he might've come back and felt like a hero from war. And yeah, life was really, really hard. But as he was situated in his social group, there was like a framework there that said, yes, what you did was meaningful. Whereas devoid of a agreed upon structure for meeting in our social groups, we go, I don't know where I'm situated. And I think the thing I was wrestling with with these guys younger than me, Gen Z is like, they live in constant amorphous social groups because of social media. You know, so whereas my grandfather might have had his family, you know, he was a Catholic at his church community and his neighborhood that he knew where he sat in a pecking order. And if he was doing something meaningful and full of purpose, that when you're always connected to this amorphous, Mm -hmm. ever-changing group, I, I wonder how much of that is just like our serotonergic system can't figure out where do I sit in a pecking order? I don't know. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, and I think no, I, I I think you're right. And there's something there's something in there that you know when you when you talk about a shared, you know, we kind of have to have a like sh- kind of a shared framework for what what that means. I mean, I you know I think this is where the, the concept of of duty, which you know, try telling <laughs> it's weird because try telling people to have a duty to anything, and that you know they get real skeptical of that concept and. But what what happens is like when you give the example of you know a grandfather coming back from war. I mean, we have like a kind of a um, Ernest Becker talked about this and you know his books, Birth and Death of Meaning and Denial of Death. This this human you know like longing for a heroic struggle that like to be heroes in some way. And you know we can think of that and clearly in, in, in like those types of examples where people are actually going and fighting a war. Um, but at at a basic level, like we all kind of want that, but that requires um, a sense of duty like that. I'm, you know, I'm, this is my obligation. This is my responsibility. And, you know, I'm not like, I'm not one of these people just to be cranky about like technology and social media. I try not to be, you know, um, you know, in a lot of ways, Ben and I are, you know, are collaborators and, and colleagues because we met um, through the internet. Like we didn't live anywhere near each other. And, so there are clearly a lot of, of benefits of those types of, you know, um, digital networks. Um, but I think one of the challenges that, that, that you're kind of hitting on is there really is no, it, it doesn't really provide a strong sense of duty. Like I can get on and I can just leave. And, but the, your other example is somebody embedded in a family, embedded in a community, embedded in a church, embedded in specific assigned roles and then wanting to, you know, feeling a need to fulfill those roles, and and that's their that's their place in the universe. Um, obviously, that can have you know some negatives, um, but I, it, it is it makes it much easier to feel a, that sense of being valued and, and needed than if you're just online and you know it's 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 very abstract and there's not a lot you know there's not a lot of personal ownership over anything and and it's easy to ostracize or to um, self-ostracize. You know, uh, my wife and I were having this conversation the other day and she made this point that was really interesting. There was this social psychologist named Kip Williams who's real famous for studying ostracism. 
And, you know, he did these studies, you know, decades ago on where it was very interesting where he would have like, you know, kind of like a situation where like we're at now, but like imagine a research participants completing a survey on a computer and there's a camera so the, the researcher can, you know, get there, can basically record their facial responses. And he had to do this thing where they played a game called, uh, it was called Cyberball. And the idea was you're, you think it like if the three of us thought we were playing a ball tossing game with each other and we were like playing, throwing around this digital ball and there weren't really two other people. It was just they, the, the participant thought there were two other people and, the, and it was created in such a way to where it'd be like if all, we were passing the ball around and then at some point, um, Ben and I start throwing the ball just to each other and exclude you, Paul. We no longer let throw the ball to you. And it sounds like a very, very trivial thing. But what he would find in these studies is even that very trivial form of ostracism was painful. And you can get, you can capture that pain with, with questionnaires by asking people their emotions, but he would capture it with the, the camera too. And what was interesting is you would actually see a facial response in which after the first couple of times of not getting the ball tossed to you, you'd be like, ha ha, good one, you know, basically like good one guys. But then eventually when we just completely ignore you, oftentimes you would see like an expression change to this like clearly defensive, cold, I'm cutting myself off mode because it hurts mm-hmm. like that. And when he, and what I liked about, um, about his work is, um, Kip Williams' work is he explained ostracism as essentially an existential threat. Like it was a form of social death. It's like, it's worse than being hated is not existing, is being ignored. Like we're not, you don't even matter to us. Um, And so, you know, in in the digital world, I think that he didn't create these things on, you know, the cyberball paradigm to study ostracism on the internet. It was just a really nice, clever way to do an experiment in fact, before that, he was doing this in it with real people in a laboratory where they were actually throwing a ball around and two of them were like in on the game. And they just, you know, but eventually he's, he shifted it to like this, this um, internet based paradigm. But, um, but the point being is like, those are situations in which um, pe- like, you just like, you don't matter anymore. Like you're, you're, and you could see on people's face how, how, how painful that was. It's it's much harder to do that to a person in in, in person in real life than it is uh, uh, on the internet. Um, but the point being is, I you know I think this belonging this thing that you know we're talking about being embedded in the social network. It's very very it's very very deep and it's very very existential. It's not just because we need each other like to accomplish goals. That that's true too, but. We need each other. Uh, we there's a certain codependence. Like we, I need to know that I matter in your life, and you need to know that I that you know vice versa. And in our in the in this more like you're saying this more like technology technology driven like global um, world, it's much easier for people to be pushed out. I think, and to be, and then the conversation, you know, getting back to the conversation I had with my wife, she made a very interesting point based on that research. She said, in addition to that, like ostracism, all that work I was just talking about, she's like, now it seems like people are starting to self-ostracize. They're starting to withdraw. Like they're, it's not that they're not getting the ball tossed to them. They're saying, I don't really want the ball tossed to me. And they're starting to withdraw more inward. Um, and you know, and so that that's and that's something I hadn't really thought that much about is is self ostracism. You you kind of see this with the anti natalism movement a little bit, which is 
humans should just withdraw. Like we should just surrender the planet to the other animals. We've screwed everything up and we should just kind of retreat. And that is a form of collective self-ostracism, I think. Um, I was like, you know, we should just, we should just leave. And, you know, we don't want to play with the ball anymore. And um, I don't know, like, I don't know how we build the more, I mean, the internet's not going away. These, you know, and like I said, I think it is a powerful positive tool in a lot of ways, but I do think we have, and there are people like Jonathan Hyde that talk about, there's a lot of people talking in this space. So I am hopeful that we can figure out how to grapple with this technology in a way to make it like serve us productively, as opposed to being um, a a, a way that like pushes us further apart from each other. Mm. You used a word, a few times in, uh, in what you just said there, Clay, you used the word embedded, mm. that there's a connection between meaning and being embedded into social groups and social community. Ben, uh, you wrote a really fascinating piece for Perfectus in which um, I think you brought up some really good arguments for how we see the meaning crisis uh, manifested in culture outside of, I, I don't want to diminish this, obviously suicide statistics are in and of themselves are, <laughs> you probably can't point to anything worse than that, right? That's That might be yeah. the apex of it. But you argued that we are seeing withdrawal of participation from spheres of life that might we might typically associate with normal basic conventions of functional civilization. And the first culprit you picked on was employment, or maybe I should say unemployment. Why do you see like withdrawal from the workforce, withdrawal from that sphere of life as a manifestation of nihilism or a manifestation of the meaning crisis? Well, I think for a lot of people, that is where you form and sustain social bonds and social connections. And I think that's really the key. Um, Not only that, I mean, typically if you're working for a business, um, you know, you have some kind of shared project that you're working on. um, And so that you have kind of a team, you have like a network. I mean, you might have factions within or cliques or, you know, there might, there all those normal human things will develop, but at least you're being exposed to those, you're participating in those in some ways. And so I think that that, that's really the primary after, after, you know, school. And um, we've seen a decline in a lot of other civil institutions, church in particular, religious attendance in particular. So I think as, as we've seen that happen, people still needed employment, they still needed jobs. And so that's, that's where a lot of that sort of social life was happening. And so now we're kind of seeing the retreat from that. And it, it was interesting, you know, Clay was talking about um, the cyberball stuff. And earlier you guys were mentioning the, um, you know, the matrix and, and fight club. And uh, I couldn't help but think, you know, that's, that's in the nineties, that's the same time that uh, Robert Putnam's bowling alone came out uh, was uh, right in that, right in that same time period. So these are uh, I think you have on one side, you have the ideas um, and the, it's more, it's being expressed maybe in popular culture and academia um, and then on the other side, you have people's lived experience as they're going through their lives. And I think what we're seeing is they're kind of working in tandem here, right? So you have, you know, what Clay was talking about with some of the more philosophical antinatalist, it's still relatively obscure um, in academic circles, but people are more alone. They're, they're not, they're not as embedded in these communities. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 
the the uh, example of cyberball and ostracism, I couldn't help but think of internet trolls, right? You know, the idea that it's better to be hated than it is to not exist or to be invisible. Um, and I think that that is uh, I, that just made me think of that. And I think that you can you can see that manifest, especially if you're a bit younger. Um, you know, I think that that's um, that's really where you see a lot of that. And I think you can see it really clearly. Uh, and maybe that's uh, partly because you don't uh, have other outlets for these social networks. Um, but I think a key thing that we're seeing is, uh, you know, a shift maybe from the past is we, it used to be the default that you would be embedded in these situations. It used to be whether it was out of, you know, if you go back far enough, obviously it's more like a poverty material deprivation thing. Um, but even, even beyond that, um, you know, I think it's hard to some people to, um, think of how far we've come, like the world of the 1950s or the 1970s, how different technologically um, and socially that looked to the 2020s. Um, it's insane. You know, like the, the number you can, economists will track this, the number of homes that have air conditioning in their house, right? Or they have, um, you know, TV or now, you know, computers and internet, you know, now people, um, even if they don't even have a home computer, they've kind of skipped over that and they'll have a smartphone and you can do basically you know, 90% of what you would do with a computer on a smartphone with an internet connection and uh, just how, how vastly dramatically different that is. And so there's some mundane ways where that might manifest, right? Where it's like, instead of having a neighbor, you know, watch, watch your kids for, for a while, or, or if you like live close to your family, a lot of people are uh, moving further away. Uh, college, obviously higher education has been a big disruptor um, locationally, um, and there's, there's more on, on that story we could talk about, but the point is people are opting for uh, less of those familial or fam family connections, and they're turning to the market for those things. And I, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I don't think that there's anything inherently bad about that. I mean, those are, those are convenient tools. Um, but I think the core of um, maybe what I'm trying to express here is it used to be a little bit more of the default that you were embedded in these communities in one way or another. And now it's, if you're going to be that way, it's going to take a lot more positive effort on your part to form those connections and become embedded in a community. Um, and that's not always fun. You know, it's not always all upside. Um, and, uh, and so I think that there is, um, there's something to be said for, for that shift. Uh, and I think, you know, on the work uh, front, you know, I think like Clay was talking about, people are just opting out. They're just they're just opting away from this altogether. And I think that they can get into that. Um, you know, maybe John Verbeke would call it like a reciprocal narrowing, where you're you're away from social connections, so you feel unneeded and you feel meaningless, and you have even less motivation to pursue those. And and like the cost of being rejected or ostracized gets even higher. And then you go a little further, and it just keeps you get into that spiral. Uh, and so, you know, you see that not only are we seeing less uh, people who are employed and working, but it's also, you know, fewer people are getting married, fewer people are having kids. Uh, but it's even more than that, you know, fewer people are starting to go on dates, um, you know, that's, um, and then another piece of this, you know, all technology is mediating all of these things, particularly in the dating world, which is um, a bit frightening, you know, for me as someone who largely avoided that. Um, and, uh, but it's also with things like work from home, you know, that's become so much more common and there is kind of, uh, a bifurcation where people who 
uh, have maybe like a wife and kids or, you know, they have, they have a solid family. Maybe they're connected in their communities. They have a circle of friends or a professional network that they're plugged into. They're a little further on in their career. Work from home for them is great because you get more time to spend that way. Um, you can choose sort of where you spend your time in a, in a more um, explicit way. Uh, but if you're 22, maybe, and you're just coming out of college and you probably have moved to a new city for a job, and you're working from home most of the time, yeah. you, it's hard to meet someone, uh, you know, it's hard to make friends. Um, and you're kind of cut off from even that most basic, that last holdout of where people might be forming these social connections. You're just, you're disconnected to it, or it's intermediated with technology, uh, as, as Clay was talking about. Yeah, I think that's interesting, because I, I, you know, I think about, obviously, my my day job is as a pastor. And, you know, I look around and I see, and you guys are probably aware of these, these, these kind of like the beginning of almost um, what you might call like atheist churches, you know, organizations, um, institutions gathering together to simulate, you know, sorts of the actions of church life driven primarily by this need that people are perceiving where they see the role that a church played here in the West as again, not just providing, you know, narrative that gives you meaning or transmitting values to your children or all that other stuff, but actually a, a hub for social connection and community connection to see these kind of pop up. Um, I think that's, that's become a fascinating problem that I've encountered when talking to other people, pastors, priests, is that in um, in a day and age where content is unlimited, people are going, I don't think like a sermon carries as much value as it once did because we can get sermons anywhere. And what people are looking for in church communities is actually the community part even more so much so that I I'm hearing from people things like, I don't even know if I believe this stuff, you know, mm-hmm. but it seems good for me to be here, <laughs> which I find, which I find really, I find really fascinating. You know, the, the absence of that hub, you would have to turn to a workplace, right? You know, I, we, I talk about this a lot with in a church context is like, you know, you get sick and you're in the hospital and you're not plugged into a religious community and you maybe you say you move you're moved away from family is it going to be like the dudes at your crossfit gym that bring you a casserole <laughs> when you're sitting in the hospital <laughs> I, I love crossfit um is it going to be the people at work that do that i mean hopefully hopefully you have meaningful connections there but that that absence is um my son you know, my son broke his wrist uh, this was about four weeks ago playing basketball and he got a card just recently, a handwritten note from a senior citizen in our church. We've got, I mean, an old church It's a 140 year old, you know, church, which is old by American standards. he got a card in the mail, a handwritten note from an, a senior citizen in our church saying, heard you broke your wrist and I'm praying for you, which is really, really sweet. And I'm thinking he doesn't even really know who this person is. Where else would this happen? But to make it even more sweet is her, her wife or her uh, husband has terminal cancer and I'm going, I hope my son has an awareness. And I tried to communicate that to him of like, I don't 
you're not going to get this at a lot of other places. I'm not trying to make a, a, a same a shameless promotion for church life, but I I do think that there's like a, an absence of these institutions like church or even the way academia has shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be this erosion of traditional institutions where people would go to find meaning social connection. Now maybe they're left with a place of employment and they don't have a narrative framework that they're living in that affords them opportunity to see their employment as meaningful beyond just a means to an end. And I think about maybe, we talked about negative examples like Fight Club and Matrix. Why do people, when they're bored, watch The Office on loop (laughs) over and over again? You know, it's seemingly as like almost nihilistic as the first season came across. The reason why people felt attracted to it, right, is they're like, well, this looks like a space where people are finding meaningful connection in community. And God, I really want that too. I don't know what are your thoughts on either either one of you on, on any of what I just said there. Well, I did, I, I did want to say, since you respond to your, your comment about um, your experience as a pastor, which... It, I think that's fascinating what you said about people, you know, maybe, maybe they don't need the sermons as, you know, cause you can get that delivered in lots of different ways. Um, it almost reminds me of the flipped classroom <laughs> exactly. idea that they talk about is mm-hmm. like, now you can deliver like lecture material, you know, in video format, which can give you more space to do collaborative work in the classroom. But, you know, one thing that if, if you want some, like a, an encouraging <laughs> like uh, interpretation uh, of some of what you're talking about. I mean, I, I think it could be, maybe maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think it could be a good sign that you have people coming to church who maybe don't believe, but are like, I feel like I should be here. Ben and I have talked about this idea of like more of like a leap of faith approach as opposed to like a more rational approach. He, he wrote about this. We've talked about this. Um, I think one of the, one of the problems with, you know, the, our like kind of modern framework, which has many, many benefits, I think, is this emphasis on data-driven approaches to decision-making, which I, I, in a lot of ways is good. Like when I, when I buy a car, I, I absolutely want to know certain things about its safety, reliability, gas mileage, you know, resale value, all of that stuff. And, and research, an old, old research in psychology, they talked about like it's kind of central versus peripheral processing and how there are like kind of intuitive and emotional appeals. And then there's more rational appeals. And uh, depending on the type of decision we're making, clearly it's important. Like when you're deciding like financial, you know, making financial decisions, you probably don't want to trust your intuition. <laughs> you probably want to use evidence. But I think that one of the problems is that we're, we're forgetting that the intuitive side of life, the more emotional, the more spiritual, you know, the more abstract side of life is also very important. And one of the things, and, and the reason I think maybe there's something encouraging there is, is you might have people that are com- like, they feel like, well, rationally, there seems to be some reason to go to church because of the, you know, people have documented the social benefits. <laughs> it's almost like a cat, but it's like, but then, you know, I think a, a, a lot of the collective experiences that involve music, and I was going to ask you about that, like how much, how much do you think the, the, the collective experience of, of, of me, like praise music or you singing totally. hymns, things like that plays and, and these things. I, I think if you, it's hard to get people there on their own, but like 
if they if you get a little bit of exposure, it's a bit of like you get it's like a cracking the door a little bit to being like, oh, there is something more to life that can rec- that if you give if you take a leap of faith on things and you are willing to embrace a little bit more of an enchanted world, a little bit more of mystery, a little bit more of like it's okay to be uncertain about it. it's it's okay that this wasn't this isn't empirical. Um, I think that's, you know, well, you know, I've, I've talked to you about this before, Paul, like, uh, you know, uh, in my work on spirituality and, and us being a spiritual species, I feel like that's people really, you can clearly see lots of ways that people are very, very hungry for that. They can't put their finger on it. They don't really know because we don't provide, you know, everything is supposed to be data driven. Um, but um, I, I think that the, the people are hungry for that. And um, I don't think I personally, I could be wrong, but I don't think these atheist kind of secular church sort of like replacements are going to work because they're not enchanted. They're not mysterious. Mm. They're not like there's something transcendent and spiritual. They don't require you to say, you know what, I I, took any kind of humility where I don't know everything. There's, 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 there's a, a a spiritual world beyond my um, ability to make contact with empirically. And, but people who throw themselves into that a little bit more, not only are their lives like less boring and more interesting, I, I think in a lot of ways, in fact, there's research like, you know, um, religious people are less bored in general. They're less likely to experience boredom. Um, so, so there's that component of it too. Um, but also it's just, it's just easier to, to find meaning because you are more willing to just throw yourself in. And this is a point Ben's made a lot. He made in that, that perfectus piece, I believe that, that, that you noted, and he could talk about this is like, a lot of things in life just require you to take that step and do the behavior, and then the, and 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 then the rewards come, as opposed to like thinking about it in advance. Yeah, yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think that's probably the best way out of this. Is you know, we're not. I think there's some people who are very hung up us on this idea that we can reason our way out of this, or with with enough information or enough data in the right way, then we'll find like that whatever that solution is. Uh, and I really, I'm not very. Uh, bullish on that solution. Um, I think I don't think it'll it'll happen that way. Uh, and I think you know to your point, I uh, about you know people maybe not believing but knowing intuitively like this is probably good for me. I think that's it. That is encouraging in some ways, but I, I would also say that there is a little bit of a warning in there with that. You know, this is a feature of what it means to be human, and that's going to find an outlet somewhere. And I think. We're, I'm seeing it manifest, you know, in the political space in particular, where like people are locating like their community and their purpose in that political space. Uh, that always, you know, there was always a bit of that, but I think it's it's really been elevated a lot uh, in the past few years uh, on both sides of the aisle. And then, you know, you can even see it a little bit on the in the workplace, uh, where I'm thinking about something like startup culture. Uh, where uh, sometimes you hear these stories where like the company logo, especially this is uh, happening in Silicon Valley, the company logo is the thing that people sort of put aside as sacred, right? Or like that's, you know, sort of, and I think that that is a bit of a a perversion of what it, what it is to, to be a business and to operate that way. Uh, It's not meant to fill uh, that space. Um, So I think, you know, we have these impulses and they're kind of firing off in these different directions. Uh, And I, and I hope that um, a lot of those are a lot of that 
spirit or a lot of that um, need can be filled by people taking the leap of faith in a healthy way, uh, you know, whether that's going to, to church or, um, you know, being devoted to some other, uh, some other very pro-social uh, social network, neighborhood community organization, some, something to that effect. Um, but I don't, I don't know exactly I mean, we're going to see a lot of all of this, I think is, uh, you know, it's all going to be in, uh, in some different directions. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, to your point, uh, Clay, uh, you know, taking that, that leap of faith, you know, it's, you know, buying, buying a car, doing those things, like we need those rational calculations, data-driven calculations. Um, but you know, that's, that's not the approach that you'd want to take to dating or a marriage or, or, you know, even a friendship, um, you know, those aren't keeping score in that way, uh, I think is, um, sadly, I think it's more common. I think we're, we're kind of seeing that in sort of, uh, the ways in which, you know, even something like the institution of marriage is changing. It's a bit more of a contract base. There's a little bit more scorekeeping, um, you know, uh, that kind of thing. And, and I think that's, uh, not the right approach to those kinds of relationships. Um, so I think, um, you know, if to your points about how we need the leap of faith, I think that's probably the best, um, thing that, that any of us can do. And I think, you know, uh, technology can enable that to a certain extent. Like we can, like, this is a tool that we are, a, we are able to use and manipulate and, and we shouldn't forget that that's, you know, this is something that, that we have at least some control over. Uh, and, and it's something that maybe we can use uh, for these good purposes. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Clay Rutledge and Ben Wilterdink. This is not the end of our conversation. In fact, part two will pick up next week. So if you enjoyed what you heard today, there's so much more next week. And in fact, I think we really even get into um, some really fascinating back and forth about what should be the highest story that we follow and then what would that actually look like in a particular like social policy so i think we had room for some charitable disagreement on this so i hope you'll listen next week you can hear our various perspectives and then you can chime in in things like the discussion forum on patreon to share your own perspective where you agree where you disagree i'd love to hear your feedback you can also reach out to me on twitter Speaking of Patreon, again, this is an ad-free, listener-supported podcast, as well as all the rest of my work. So if you want to see it continue, please consider supporting on Patreon. I want to give an extra special thanks to supporters like Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, Jesse, John Mark, Johnny, Josie, Justin, Kirk, Lola, Luke, Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul, Rob, and Sam P. Thank you guys for your generous support. We'll be picking up with our monthly Zoom conversations in uh, the weeks ahead. So I hope you will be able, most of you that I just listed off, will be able to join for, for those conversations as we ramp back, ramp those back up in 2023. Again, I'd love to hear your comments, your feedback. So you can chime in in the discussion forums. If you're a Patreon supporter, you can message me on Patreon. But again, you can also reach out on Instagram or uh, Twitter at Paul Ann Leitner. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.